This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Under the Sea, Under the Sea, Darling, it's better down where it's wet to take it from me. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show. Where we're putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gep, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izex. Hi! Aren't you glad we didn't do a full musical score that time? Yes. <laughs> uh, me singing alone is a little easier to, to sort out there. <laughs> All right, this week, um, it's Space Atlantis, basically. Kinda, yeah. Not Atlanta, Atlantis. Slightly different. And and also just, oh my god, these names. This episode is called The Ambergris Element. Ambergris being the uh, substance from a whale's digestive system commonly used in perfumes, popularized yep. by Futurama. Yes. <laughs> or, or was it popularized by this episode then repopularized by Futurama? Uh, uh. Oh, oh, I guess. We, we will never know. <laughs> People that did Futurama were very um, inspired by a lot of old sci-fi things, so it could be. Yes. <laughs> oh, maybe we can get uh, one of them on uh, the, sh- the show to tell us yes or no at some point. That would be fun. That would be interesting. <laughs> so we have lots of random questions about things you referenced. Were you actually inspired by this, or was this something that came up? <laughs> so this episode is written by a longtime veteran who we've gotten several things by already, Margaret Armin, who previously did Game Masters of Tyskelion, Paradise Syndrome, apparently was one of the people who ruined the rewrite of the Cloudminders Uh in uh, animated series, so our most recent episode, was also responsible for Lorelei's Signal. I hope this episode's better than that one. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I can't decide. (laughs) I I I will say this one's, I guess, less offensive? Yeah, less yeah. offensive, <laughs> about as meaningful plot-wise, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and we uh, have an uncredited voice of uh, Lou Shimmer. I think Shimmer, possibly. Shimmer, Shimmer. Who was one of the co-founders of Filmation and a producer for the show who did several voices from here on, just random people in the office voice acting sort of thing. Uh, he was in uh, Ghostbusters, Brave Star, She-Ra, Princess of Power, and various other uh, uh, roles in various times throughout Funimation's long history there. So <laughs> going back to the mid-60s with the new adventures of Superman. And that's just his producer credits. Oh, crap. <laughs> I mean, it was just a okay. producer there and a go. co-founder. So I think he's just done <laughs> random uncredited voices. <laughs> yes. Uh, also, uh, eight credits of self. Ghouli in a docu-comedy. I don't know what that is. <laughs> huh, that's interesting. Credited as self in various things. Yes. <laughs> uh, but uh, he'll also be a Romulan crewman uh, in The Practical Joker and uh, Jeremy and Guard in Albatross for Star Trek the Animated Series at some point. Yeah, two different Dromians, whatever that is. Yes. <laughs> I saw that coming up too, and, and we have no idea. What any of that is, but maybe we will recognize yeah, them. We'll, 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 we'll experience it later, yes. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. There's not going to be a lot of stuff in this episode, so I guess we should get going. <laughs> well, we, can talk, 
we could talk about how James Doohan's like playing a bunch of people again. Again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone who's not this guy is James Doohan. Again. Yep. <laughs> or Miss Jill Barrett. Again. I always think it's interesting because in the, you know, they have the credits, credits, opening credits says starring the voices of, and then it has, you know, William Shatner as Kirk and Leonard Nimoy as Spock. And then, then it doesn't show like, I, I just want it to keep being at the end of like everyone else. James <laughs> Dewan. <laughs> Scotty and everyone else. <laughs> I don't even think you get Scotty in the opening credits because it's always only Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. It's just kind of, kind of, kind of unfortunate, you know? Yeah. Got an ensemble cast here. Come on, guys. So, okay. The Enterprise is investigating the planet Argo, a world that has experienced such large seismic disturbances that the land has completely subsided, leaving the planet covered mostly with huge seas and a few dotted islands that were the tops of large mountains. Now, uh, this Argo should not be confused with the, uh, the film Argo in 2012, so uh, it's just a coincidence. Yeah, don't, don't do that, <laughs> I guess. So we got an archipelago planet uh, with little islands everywhere and uh, apparently going to have fewer islands sometime in the future, maybe. So they send down the Aqua Shuttle, which I wish that's is something I wish that Star Trek would use more often. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, though they uh, do, uh, you know, at some point, I think it was the, uh, the Delta Flyer goes underwater for an episode. Um, but that's sort of a special, does everything sort of special ship there. So, And they have to specifically modify it to work underwater for the episode. It's like, all right, we, we've already got it so it can go into crazy atmospheres, but water, ugh, just impossible unless we tweak, tweak it first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was designed specifically to go into the upper atmosphere of a gas giant but water <laughs> just too much pressure i guess uh? <laughs> i don't know it's my favorite futurama joke <laughs> it could go it could stand uh atmospheric pressures between zero and one <laughs> so they sent down the aqua shuttle which is a spaceship watercraft submarine hybrid yeah it's pretty cool they are apparently doing this to investigate and learn what they can about this planet because there's an identical planet somewhere. Huh. An identical planet that's going to have the same thing happen to it soon. And they need to learn what they can about what happened to this planet to prevent whatever disaster on that planet. Well, we've already had like three or four uh, versions of Earth uh, they've run into. So I guess identical pl uh, versions of other planets is kind of to be expected. I mean, yeah, it would stand to reason, wouldn't it? Earth can't be all that special. I mean, we got 12 Vulcans over here. We got uh, 15 Kronoses over here. You know, it's all good. So Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and their shuttle pilot, who I love this guy because they animated him doing exactly one thing with one voice line, which is to say, yes, sir, and hit a button. <laughs> yes, sir. They used this four times. <laughs> Push the button. Push the button. Push it. Push this guy button. exists yes. for them to say, take us under. Yes, sir. Fire phasers. Yes, sir. Wait a moment. Maybe he's actually a robot. They, they went to the uh, the uh, the uh, IMUD plant and, and grabbed one of the androids there and just like, yeah, just say yes, sir, and push the button every time we tell you to do something. Yes, sir. So Spock and McCoy are about to start doing their science stuff when they are suddenly attacked by a giant tentacly sea monster. Oh no, uh, where's Captain Nemo when you need him? Yeah, where would Captain Nemo? 
Starfleet Captain Nemo would be fun. <laughs> They're going to stun the thing with the ship's phasers, but when they go to investigate, it suddenly wakes up and starts knocking the ship around. Hmm, uh, do we have a stun setting number two? <laughs> well, now the phasers are broken, because... I don't know why they went to check on the thing and let it start knocking the ship around. <laughs> Maybe they're just bad at their jobs. I don't know. Um, McCoy and the pilot are thrown clear before the creature drags the ship, still containing Kirk and Spock, down below the water. But now the guy doesn't have a button to push. Jeepers. So rude. Five days later, the crew have been frantically searching for Kirk and Spock this entire time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, they've been sending small, open-topped watercraft down, which seems like a really bad idea, considering what happened to the last thing that they sent down to the planet. Yes. <laughs> you know, maybe during that five days, they went down with a, a crazy armored shuttle... And then the thing didn't show up, and then the regular shuttle, and then it didn't show up, and then it's like, ah, just take out the rowboats, it's fine. <laughs> At this point, they finally discover Kirk and Spock unconscious on some rocks. They're still alive, but McCoy discovers that their lungs no longer work. At least they're no longer able to breathe air. They have adapted to be able to breathe only water. Now, it should be pointed out that when they found them, they were face down in the water. So the first instinct should be, it's like, Oh no, we found their bodies. But no, oh, they're alive. That, that, that's weird. But no, it's like, oh, they're just alive. It's fine. <laughs> they moved them to a small-ish water-filled room in sickbay where they seem to be able to swim around and breathe just fine, but they have no memory of what happened to them after the shuttle crashed. Well, uh, this is going to be a little awkward. Uh, do we convert uh, sickbay into like the bridge now or what? Yeah. McCoy discovers that these changes are actually artificial mutations that were induced by a series of injections at strategic points of a compound that McCoy's never identified before. Hmm. Never found. So, uh... Unable to identify is the sentence I was looking for yes. there. <laughs> so, uh... I, I don't like making anti-vax jokes, but uh, this would be the place to put one if you uh, if that was <laughs> how we were going to go here. But, you know, get your vaccines, people. And Kirk thinks that the answers must be down beneath the water, but McCoy and Scotty both voice concerns about their inability to explore with shuttles and that they can't pick up anything down there on the sensors. But as Kirk points out, he and Spock can go down there just fine without worrying because of the water breathing thing. Also, he can't really command a ship in a tank for the rest of his life. So uh, Kirk's going to go uh, on a, a mission of discovery all by himself with Spock uh, to... Uh, to basically get command of his uh, ship back, effectively. Mm -hmm. That's that's his one entire more time. Yes. <laughs> that's his entire motivation once again. <laughs> so uh, donning reverse spacesuits, the two head down to the planet with uh, Scotty on another one of these little support boat things. Um, they they have reverse spacesuits. They have these little aqua thingies that have water, so he could not have to be in sickbay the whole time but you know <laughs> we inconvenient or something <laughs> uh kirk and spock soon come across a group of green-skinned aquatic humanoids later called the aquans who are gathering kelp well these guys uh maybe they know uh, what happened to us uh hey are you guys like expert medical people they might be but they don't want kirk and spock here they yell at them to leave they have no love for surface dwellers you air breather you blatantly not uh, they say that their young saved their lives, but that they disagreed with that decision. Well, uh, this is an awkward situation. The people with all the answers don't want to talk to us because of some sort of weird disagreement. Yeah. Huh. So uh, the Aquans leave. Confused but unperturbed, Kirk and Spock follow uh, to an undersea rift where they emerge from this to find a large Aquan city. 
Wait, what was another hidden city? This one's not tiny, is it? No, this one's huge. Though, as as much as I love this aesthetic, I love myself some good underwater travel. I love submarines. Like It's one of my favorite little things is to just have like, oh, what's down there? Underwater civilizations and stuff. Mm-hmm. What are these buildings for? <laughs> good question. There's no weather. They're all in the water. There's water inside and outside of the buildings. Well, uh, maybe it's to keep out the big uh, crazy snake tentacle monster, Thaleo. That could be. They are soon caught in a net and brought before a council of Aquans who are somehow managing to sit down. Maybe they, uh, I don't know, maybe they've eaten rocks or something like that, so they're less buoyant. Yeah, they could be, but it's just... None of, the, none of the stuff here makes sense for being underwater. Yeah. <laughs> There's a SpongeBob quote. <laughs> like, they sent a note and the letters run. He says, some people have no idea of the physical limitations of living underwater. Well, onto the fire. <laughs> so, apparently the um, council's here to put them on trial or something for being intruders. It's kind of unclear. There's older Aquans who don't trust the two outsiders keep citing ancient records about air breeders and think no one can be trusted. And there's a younger Aquans led by a woman named Rilla who don't think they should always believe the ancient records, um, are the ones who helped Kirk and Spock mutate in the first place and think they should hear them out. So we got some uh, some conservatives versus some young progressives here. Uh, seems like a, a dynamic that plays out often enough. It does. So the old members uh, still think they're hostile and they don't believe that they came from another world they're definitely air breathers and they aren't going to explain themselves also the mutation that they used to turn them into water breathers so they're no longer air breathers like they keep yes <laughs> yelling at them about uh only goes one way so bad luck there yep uh sorry sucks to be you uh so i guess you're gonna have to live with us now because you're not air breathers but you're air breathers who can't live with us so go away so, back on the surface, Scotty gets a warning from the ship that there's soon going to be a massive sea quake that's going to destroy everything in the area, and they need to warn Kirk and Spock before it hits. Scotty moves the boat closer to where he thinks they went in order to get a better signal, but the boat is also seen by the Aquans, who use it as evidence of Kirk and Spock's treachery, and they're taken to the surface and tied to some rocks to suffocate to death. Now, it should be pointed out that before this, that the Aquans explicitly state that they don't like hurting people and don't want to kill people. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they're now trying to kill people. <laughs> yes, they they explicitly say like, hey, we're peaceful and whatever. Not like you air breathers. Well, let them go suffocate while they're tied down. Oh, but it wasn't us who killed them. It was the air. Yeah, our hands are clean. <laughs> <laughs> they're supposed to be air breathers. If they couldn't take the air, then it's their problem, not ours. <laughs> so Rila comes and tries to get them out, but she is too weak to take a net off of them, which is unfortunate. Uh, Kirk sends her off to find Scotty, and she brings the boat back with help. Now reunited with Scotty and back in the water, Rayla exposits. Exposition time. Hooray, we're finally going to get some clues of what's actually going on here. Finally. So the planet was once peaceful, but water started to rise, and her ancestors developed a mutagen that would let them breathe underwater, because there's now a lot more water. Um... The remnants of the surface people then started to fear and attack them, even though they were the same people and they did this intentionally. Um, apparently because of just the stress 
of a natural disaster happening caused them to start attacking people. That's what uh, they cite anyway. This is a little confusing as far as stories go, but I'm going to put it down to unreliable narrators because apparently this was some long time ago. Yeah. Of indeterminate age. So, And uh, this is why the mutation's only allowed to go one way, because they're racist. Maybe there, maybe there was a lot more dynamics going on during that period that maybe it was more than just, you know, air breathers versus water breathers because they were coming from this, the same civilization nominally. But maybe there was some sort of social division that was actually at play here that, you know, and so the, uh, the, the water breathers now were like the, the descendants of the rich people that had access to the, uh, the, all, the, 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 the means to escape their dying planet. Well, everyone else had to get screwed over. <laughs> that could be either the rich people are the ones who had the means to transform and not have to die horribly in the water or they were the poor people who were being experimented on because no one was sure if this was going to work and then the poor people were like oh we're like fish people now and, the, and the, everyone else is like oh no can't have that so we're going to attack you now or something i don't know <laughs> so anyway there are some ancient ruins that are forbidden apparently where they might find some answers because ancient scrolls and whatnot uh, Scotty warns them of the upcoming sea quake, but they convince Rila to take them to the ruins first. Uh, Rila won't go in with them because it's forbidden. Definitely super forbidden. So Kirk and Spock swim through strong currents in a weird-looking cave thing. The, the dynamics here are very unclear. She takes them to a little rift thing that looks like it's an undersea cave that they have to go through. But then the ruins are just also in open water. Yes. <laughs> Maybe it's just so uh, large of a cavern that it looks like it's open water, but it's, you know, then it kind of begs the question, like, where are the light's coming from? Yeah. Maybe they just can see the dark now? I don't know. The city just has automated streetlights that are still functioning. <laughs> so inside this Roman-looking city, they find a building with medically-looking symbols on it. Apparently everyone has the same universal medical symbols. Yeah, so though these ones are slightly more Aquan-themed, I guess? Which doesn't make any sense, since apparently this is pre-Aquan, but... <laughs> well, maybe they used to be like snake people, and then they become fish people instead. And then they got, got, got uh, legs in that process. <laughs> oh, gross legs. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not that you, it's not that you guys breathe water, it's that you have legs now. That's, that's just awful. <laughs> <laughs> they grab the first three things they find which I guess are important, and go to leave. But then they're attacked by the sea monster again. Oh no. Very conveniently, there's an earthquake and the building collapses on it, and they leave. I know, our, our sacred temple of all the important stuff that uh, hopefully we got everything out of. Yeah. Yeah. You hope so. <laughs> so McCoy analyzes what they brought back to find that they brought back exactly what they needed. Well, that's convenient. Apparently, the stuff inside them is something like ambergris. They say that because that would do make sense somehow. Also, you. <laughs> they did mention earlier that the big uh, crazy snake thing, Majig, uh, was apparently biologically similar to a whale. So, hint, hint, hint. Yeah, could be. Also, they need an antitoxin. To cancel out the mutagen in their blood. Unfortunately, the antitoxin is the venom of the Sir Snake, which we've never heard this name before in the episode, but apparently we're supposed to know it's just the giant tentacle thing. Well, there is only one bit of wildlife we've really run into here, so... I, yeah, it's just yeah. weird that they suddenly name it like we're supposed to know what's happening. Yes. 
Earlier on, they like, yeah, you were attacked by a stir stake and uh, ended up down here and we won and we saved your lives. Now go away. <laughs> but they just kind of left that bit out. Kark and Spock recruit the help of the young Aquans to get the venom. They're like, no, the the laws, the ancient doctrines forbid us to go into the city and forbid us to go screw with the sir snake. And they're like, hey, knowledge is the only thing that will save you. And like, you're right, dude. Well, uh, uh, that was a pretty easy argument to win. Let's go do things. The young people of this civilization are very easily swayed. Yes. <laughs> Real of before was like, oh, I can't take you to the ruins. It's forbidden. Come on. It's like, okay. Okay. It's like, are they like, they're animated as adults, but maybe they're like 10? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they might be. I mean, they're trying to do a youth rebellion thing. So I kind of like, we don't want to follow the old doctrines. So like peer pressure will work really easy. <laughs> well, like maybe it's just exploiting uh, something they want to do already. And yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they find the snake that got knocked up by the building and catch it in a net before it wakes up. They grab just enough venom before the quakes hit again and the snake is squished now. Oh no, our sir snake is no longer going to be threatening us the rest of the episode. Also, we might not have enough venom, so that sucks. Yeah, this is the third time this thing's gotten passed out, so maybe it'll just show up again and just attack the ship out of nowhere. <laughs> Who knows? It's like suddenly it's like, wait a moment, we're on the Enterprise. It's attacking, though. It's here. How did it get here? I don't know. So McCoy prepares the antitoxin for them on board in the aquarium tank thing. Uh, he's not sure of the dose, but he doesn't have enough to test because they were only able to get just enough. So if he gives them too much, the mutagen will be made permanent. Dun, dun, dun. That seems confusing, but okay. Yeah, really confusing. Kirk knows first. For a minute, it almost looks like he's going to go full fish man with scales and a fin and everything, but soon the mutation reverses, making me really wonder if inside of the tank was the best place to do this. Yeah, because uh, like, oh, his lungs are starting to transform to be, to be how they were before. While he's passed out underwater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe we should, like, I don't know, get him out of this tank, maybe? Yeah, one would, you'd hope. <laughs> so after Kirk and Spock are returned to normal, they bring the Aquan leaders on board using their reverse scuba suit things and show them how they can now use the ship's phasers to redirect the quakes, thus saving the city. So uh, you guys need to be like more chill about people that you don't, uh, you know, you know, you, you're just meeting for the first time and not just assume all sorts of horrible bias things about them, you know? Yeah, one would hope. So back on the planet, the quakes have caused the old city that they were in before to rise up out of the sea. Rila says the young people will now use the anti-mutagen thing to become air breathers again and go explore the old ruins. Seems unnecessary to completely change your body, but fine. Kirk's glad that they figured out the thing with the phasers. Yeah. Because they just, they just immediately said like, hey, we can use phasers to redirect earthquakes. Like this was a thing they knew already. Then at the end, they're like, I'm glad we figured out the thing with the phasers to redirect earthquakes. That will help us save the other planet. Now, there was a, a little bit of an off-handed uh, comment about uh, also in their sacred scrolls that they found that there was something useful on that. But it wasn't really sort of delved into other than, now we have the solution. Yeah. Now yeah. we have <laughs> the magic solution. It's like, wait a moment, we could do this. They, we've acquired enough uh, uh, knowledge about... Uh, you know, bi biological mutation and also, you know, tectonic activity from these ancient scrolls that we just happened to stumble across at the right time before they were all uh, possibly destroyed. That we we're able to solve this problem. So this is all very contrived. Yep. Very, yeah. very, very contrived. 
But that's a Star Trek, uh, uh, you know, animated series sort of trope at this point. So, you know, as oh, you yeah. do, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we had to figure out how to do this thing. Oh, we figured out how to do this thing. <laughs> okay, then. Good job. What next impossible thing we're going to do next, eh? <laughs> so they express a little bit of concern that now with the young people who are going to live on the surface, maybe they'll lose touch again and fight. And the older council members go, no, we'll write a edict to forbid that we lose touch and fight and the young people go well that edict will listen to <laughs> but not your kids uh, they'll, they'll ignore it don't worry about it that's 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 a future you problem <laughs> yeah also they seem really uh, hung up on edicts solving all their problems and uh, that hasn't worked so far so <laughs> <laughs> yeah the the edicts definitely work and have worked and will do exactly what we need and want like they didn't yeah <laughs> so uh so that was an episode yeah that was definitely definitely that <laughs> so uh what what do you think the big lesson is for this week's uh, uh outing uh it seems to be a weird mix i mean it's 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 not bad because i'm it's interesting that they kind of did a both thing in this, because before we've definitely gotten sort of, you know, especially original series episodes of like, uh, oh, those teens, mm-hmm. listen to your parents. Listen to your parents or everything will be terrible forever. Yeah. But now it's like the, the younger folk are actually like, yeah, we were actually kind of right here and uh, we we're just kind of scared of like defying you because, you know, our society's like that. Yeah, this one's a very first off it's it's a pretty like yeah, the younger people were kind of right. They were just worried about defying the older people. So, there you go. But also it's um it's sort of a like both sides have a little bit to listen to. Like y'all old people are xenophobic and weird and whatever, but like maybe some of the old thi- old edicts existed for a reason. You just maybe should know what it is and communicate it better. But uh, it gets back to that unreliable narrator sort of stuff that if you're going to be separated uh, uh, from the events and the causes of why these things are are laid down, you can very easily lose track of why something was established in the first place. And so it stops being a, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, we uh, have this as a rule because, you know, eating the the crazy sponge over there will actually kill you. So don't do that. Uh, Now it's just. It's forbidden to go anywhere near it, and if you do, you'll be punished by us or the gods or whatever. And and people are like, oh, well, if it's just sort of this weird sort of external uh, authority claiming this, and is it does, it, and they don't seem to have any good reason for it, maybe they're full of crap. And I'm going to go touch the sponge. They need reasons for the like edicts and stuff in order for it to make sense so you know what to follow, which seems to be a bit of the message, because at the end, they're like, well, we'll make an edict that we have to be friends. And they're like, well, that one we can listen to. So it's really kind of a... It's an interesting ending, because they didn't... They 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 depicted the older generation as wrong basically the entire way through, which is kind of an interesting choice here. Mm-hmm. But then at the end, the older generation kind of comes around and it's like, we'll use the things we understand to try to make sure that we don't lose touch. And the younger generation goes, that seems like a good idea. So both of them learned something and now they're going to listen to each other and work together from now on, which is an interesting, like, like it's always portrayed usually as like, 
either the younger people are always right and the old people are just going to hold them back, or the older people are always right and the younger people just have to learn to listen. But we got a, a little bit of a uh, coming to terms here. It's a little you know, hokey, but, you know, it's something, I guess. But uh, I, I will say that uh, the, I guess, the political philosophy most on display here as far as their society go is uh, sort of like old school conservatism where uh, it's very much a, all right, so these are how, this is how our society is working. And we have these sort of collection of ideas, axioms, um, uh, you know, assumed rules, uh, traditions, et cetera, et cetera, that have been, uh, you know, established to work for us. And so we are going to keep following them uh, in fear that if we try anything else, you know, great disaster will happen. Uh, and, uh, the, and so you have this institution of the, the tribune, tribunal, whatever it is, council of elders and sometimes young people, uh, sort of, uh, ruling society. And they're, this keeps coming back to the, uh, the, the, the established doctrines that they've been following and that's like we we have to we have to go with this because we must because that's how we are and it's you know gotten to the point where one you know, as I said I mentioned before they've sort of lost track of why they're sort of doing this you know it, is it because this is how it works and this is how we keep ourselves necessarily safe you know there is some hints of that but it is very much a you know you know it comes off as a we're we've taken it overboard. We we're going all the way to be, you know, you know, you know, an assumed thing as opposed to something we actually believe. This is a I, I guess it's it's there's there's very little difference between those two, but one is something that you have come, you know, thought about and decided that I'm going to adopt this as a philosophy versus a I'm just going to adopt this as a philosophy without thinking about it. Well, the one is more of a tradition of like, we're doing this because we've always done it. And maybe there was a reason for it in the past. Um, this, this may be apocryphal, but there's sort of like, like the, the prohibition against eating pork in certain religious philosophies. Um, there's sort of this older story idea that, that something like that is because in ancient times, pork was actually kind of a like, it's a difficult to prepare meat it's difficult to like keep around and prepare safely so the prohibition was most was more sort of a health concern thing of like if you, you people who eat this tend to get sick so we've made a connection here um that's something that's like no longer really the case with modern food safety things in a lot of places so now it's crossed over into just being a religious tradition that's followed because it's been followed mm-hmm not to say anything against either of those, and again, it might be apocryphal, but it does uh, illustrate the point. <laughs> yeah, uh, and so it's it sort of uh, has encouraged a set of behaviors that are in 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 the present maybe not necessary, but are still followed uh, for uh, you know sort of the internal reasons of the vo those who practice them. Now, what's really, I mean, you're talking about the old school conservatism thing with this philosophy. It's interesting to me that they are using. In this case, a quite literal boogeyman to enforce the reason that they should keep using these rules and philosophies. Because as far as we've seen, um, the air breathers that they're so worried about are now completely extinct. We never yes. hear about them. 
and there's no sign that they're on the surface. You know, the Enterprise is unable to detect any uh, sign of civilization or people on the surface at all. So it kind of implies that they're all gone. They've all died or they've all become Aquans themselves. Which, in fact, makes a lot of what they're presenting here much closer to something like a religious philosophy rather than a kind of, you know, legal tradition. Because in a lot of cases, even even in fairly conservative societies, if if there's no particular reason for a law to exist anymore, it it kind of stops. Now there there are a lot of laws and things that don't seem to make make sense in modern context, but a lot of the times that's because the like the purpose of the law is to illustrate the like, control over certain portions of the population, and the law itself is doing that fairly well. But like you know, several places in the U.S., like where I grew up in in Phoenix, it's it's like it's illegal to spit on the sidewalk because it's like was worried about like tuberculosis spreading and things uh that's a law that's like still on the books in a lot of places but is no longer enforced because it's just not useful to expend the resources to do so but something like a religious philosophy you would continue enforcing it because the entire point of those philosophies is that you follow them regardless that is a uh the, the the purpose of the uh, uh, the religious philosophy is very different than the uh, uh, legal law. Yeah, I'm reminded of a uh, of a Terry Pratchett quote, which is basically, if you're going to if you're not going to do something traditional because it looks silly, you may as well give up on the whole thing right now. <laughs> yeah. Now, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, there is, of course, uh, you know, in the real world, uh, uh, you know. Numerous instances where the uh, legal and religious uh, do intersect, uh, and uh, you know, in, in several different faiths, and uh, the and so there is, I guess, you know, we, we could go into uh, uh, cr- quite a bit of conversation about that, but I haven't quite prepared uh, prepared that myself here. So yeah, if you got anything there, uh, feel free though. <laughs> Not particularly. I mean, it's it's kind of a natural evolution if you look at it. Like, as far as we can tell, like, um, general concepts of morality that seem to be fairly either innate or kind of, uh, organize themselves naturally in, in small to medium sized groups kind of get codified either into something resembling like a proto legal system or a religious system. And then as time moves on, the one is used to justify the other and they become intertwined. A lot of older um, civilizations had completely intertwined legal and um, religious systems. Uh, Now, like you mentioned, there's a lot of places that do have these, especially more religiously organized uh, state actors. Um, But even in the U.S., which purports to separate the two legally, a lot of laws are religiously inspired and people will also cite religion as the basis for a lot of very fundamental things that we consider moral like the prohibition on killing and stealing and things like that there's there's various sectors that will claim that those are completely religiously inspired so it's it's hard to untangle them because even the concept of untangling them is actually a fairly modern idea and uh, when we've not fully embraced as uh, civilization. Because even if you look at something like <laughs> Christianity and 
uh, Old Testament Judaism there. Like the Ten Commandments in Abrahamic religions are literally a list of laws. These are the things you do and do not do, so uh, get to it, folks. So, like, go out and honor your parents, but don't kill anybody, please. And there was a particular um, framework of lawmaking, even in, like, the Middle Ages of, like, theologians would study religious texts in order to to determine what they should do legally. So what is the moral way to deal with this problem? And uh, are we being moral enough in our going after it? And, of course, then you wind up with the particular problem of the um, ancient divine right to rule ideas, which persisted in the, like, Bronze Age through the Middle Ages. Oh, and they would sooner, yeah, more recently than that, too. <laughs> like, now you still have that, but it's a little less... Most people don't don't literally say that the ruler is the, like, personal on Earth personification of God. But it's, uh... They still maybe want to act like it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then you wind up with a problem there, because like if if the king is literally God, then anything the king says to be legal is God saying it. So you you basically have a completely integrated legal and and religious system in those cases. So uh, I I guess uh, be careful if you're uh, hanging out with the king of Rome. But yeah, that's not. I don't know. Like we said, that wasn't where we thought the conversation would go. We try to prepare <laughs> stuff for these things, and then sometimes we wind up on a wild tangent. Yes, uh, so do you want to talk about Amagris instead? Sure, let's just whale, right. whale gook. <laughs> so uh, do you know what Amagris is? Uh, it's, it's some sort of excretion inside of a whale's digestive system. I think, it's the, I think it might be kind of like a thing that get, forms around a like, impurity or like, irritant. Kind of. Uh, there is a uh, hypothesis out there that it uh, is generated by sperm whales specifically and no other sort of whales, but specifically just them, uh, when they are needing to get something through their digestive tract that is generally physically hard for them to pass, say the beak of a uh, giant squid. Ah. So speaking of giant tentacly monsters here, uh, <laughs> the uh, and, and so, you know, this it's, it sort of forms up and, you know, very slowly and, uh, and uh, the, it, it's, I guess, forms around it or near it or as a response to, and maybe the, whatever, you know, it was trying to deal with has already passed and it just keeps building up. Cause like, oh no, it's probably buried in there somewhere. I, my body doesn't know how to stop for a while and then it just does it for a while. And then there's this big giant lump of gunk, uh, inside their digestive tract and, um, well, it needs to go somewhere eventually, um, and so unless the uh, you know the, the sperm whale dies, uh, it tries to uh, pass it, aka poop it out. Um, so it's not quite poop, but it's similar, I guess. <laughs> well, I know that it's valuable for one being rare that comes from one particular kind of whale that dumps it out into the ocean, mm-hmm. and also there's this weird thing in perfume making. Lots of people probably know this already, but. Like, you think of perfume as a good-smelling thing. That's the general purpose. But you also have layered scents in there. And this is one of those... They have, like, a thing that's generally called, like, a base note, which is usually a really heavy, by itself, fairly unpleasant scent, like your musks and things. And ambergris kind of falls into that category. It smells god-awful. Yep. But you can use it as, like, the base note of a perfume, which then contrasts some other things. And when you have everything together, it's actually better as a more complex profile than just having a lot of like 
good smelling sweet things in there. Yeah, so uh, this, this this material that has a kind of sea uh, uh, based uh, fecal odor for all that nastiness there. Uh, you know, you, you know, if you reduce it to the right amounts, it uh, then is sort of a, uh, a contribution to, to that whole range of experience there. But it also, you know, the sort of, I guess, the octochemical there uh, can also be used to help uh, be a fixative uh, in the perfume, uh, which helps uh, 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 metal around with the, uh, the vapor pressure and such, so it actually lasts longer, too. Oh, so it's both uh, contributes to the scent as well as you know, is chemically uh, useful for it. It's currently prohibited because, you know, whales. Yes. Uh, searching for ambergris uh, kind of, you know, endangered the whales the first place there. Yeah, because it's, you know, you know, even like, you know, people's like, oh, we're going for whale oil. Now it's mainly actually people wanted to have perfumes. And so, you know, they're going to kill like 50,000 whales a year. And suddenly, you know, there's not so many whales anymore. Whoops. Um and so they're like, maybe we should like chill out on this and uh, look for alternatives. And uh, uh, eventually, uh, they did come uh, figure out what the you know the active chemical was specifically. Uh, I think the 1940s, maybe, uh, and was able to synthesize it uh, synthetically. So the so you, know, you can get the the the, the, the effectiveness of of uh, legit ambergris there with a artificial substitute because it's just basically what you were going there for the first place. The first, you know, just sort of made in a lab as opposed to in a whale stomach. Which is actually a lot of the stuff in perfume now. Yes. If you actually look into <laughs> uh, it, you have a lot of stuff that was old made, like had to be gathered from like rare, weird ingredients, but civic cats and musk deers and things like that. And now you, uh, but now you just make it artificially in a lab. Yeah, and uh, and so we we are less prone to hunting these species to extinction as a result. Hooray! Now, there are still uh, other things that uh, threaten uh, these uh, these critters, but uh, at least that's one major pressure from our, uh, I guess, greedy society that's been sort of removed there, which is kind of nice. Yeah, now that you aren't hunting them down for perfume ingredients, it's made things a little easier. So, uh, so hooray for chemistry! <laughs> Uh, now we've talked about this before, but it was—it's been a while. I always think it's really interesting when you get this theme, especially in sci-fi shows, of kind of the ancient medical technology. Which yeah, it's just kind of like, yeah, we, we knew how to do this back then, and and uh, we had like Roman amphitheaters and stuff. Well, I think it's always interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's always presented as the technological progress quote-unquote, has been lost for some reason, in this case, natural disasters. Mm -hmm. And then they have to come in and, like, rediscover the ancient knowledge of what used to be a technologically advanced civilization. But in in our own modern world, we, there's actually a new kind of branch of this. Uh, it's been around a bit, and it's been developed more now, where we are looking at more sort of ancient slash folk medicine ways of doing things because at one point or another those worked and if we figure out why they worked we might be able to find applications now that we could use especially and this is where i came across it originally in something like um antibacterials which you have to kind of cycle those because as everyone knows we're having this problem of antibacterial resistant uh, bacteria evolving 
So you kind of have to cycle out which kind of antibacterial you're using every so often. Because it develops a resistance, you have to change the thing, then you have to change the thing, then eventually you can circle back round because the, the original resistance would have like no longer been applicable, might have evolved out or weakened. So they're finding ancient antibacterial methods, um, which they are then testing and then we could possibly use again because these things were used, you know, maybe a thousand years ago. The bacteria no longer have immunity to those ancient methods. And now that we know what we're doing, we might be able to actually apply them more consistently in a way that would be more helpful and consistently useful than the way that they used to be used before they even knew what antibacterials were. Indeed. So we could uh, potentially have a, a effectively a system in place where, you know, we sort of, you know, have, you know, intentional cycles where we go through different methods here. And, you know, we're always going to be able to effectively keep the bacteria in check uh, to a certain percentage for, uh, for you know, uh, how effective our uh, 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 strategy is. Uh, but uh, the moment it starts to weaken up, we switch over to a strategy that we haven't used in a while. And then suddenly, and we just have enough of these that we're always going to be maximally effective at all times, which is kind of nice. Well, we also have um, various things like old legends, um, just older ways of doing it. Uh, some places now, it's a little unpopular because we think it's kind of gross, but can be necessary. Um, leeches are making a bit of a comeback because they, as a way to kind of move blood, they, they used to be used for bleeding, but they're very, very good at moving a lot of blood out of your body relatively painlessly. And uh, they can often be used to like encourage blood flow to severed limbs or digits. Like if they have to reattach a finger for some reason, they will often put like a leech on the end of it because it's pulling the blood through, which forces blood flow into the newly attached digit. Indeed, and uh, they also have like a natural uh, anticoagulant, uh, correct? Yes, which is one of the things that helps. They also have teeth sharper than scalpels, so it's a relatively painless process to be bitten by a leech because if you, if they caused you too much pain, you'd notice and get rid of yes. them. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just kind of latches on there and uh, effectively acts as a localized heart pump for your, you know, your 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 damaged limb. There, you also have uh, maggots, which are people think are even more gross, but are incredibly medically useful. They like that bacteria stuff for, for starters, so they yeah. like to eat that up. And then they're going to be, uh, you know, uh, chowing down and eating, you know, you know, necrotic tissues and things like that long ago. Oh, and uh, it's like, oh, and now I'm no longer horribly infected with an open wound. Hooray. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, you have the same biological organism has teeth sharper than scalpels thing. Happens a lot. Um, but also they eat dead tissue but only and exclusively dead tissue mm -hmm. so they will eat if you have like a bad injury or an infection they will eat all of the dead tissue but they will not go a millimeter further which is something that's incredibly difficult to do if a person has to like you know cut that out of you yes so uh you know they're they're better surgeons than humans hooray <laughs> but just really small and wiggly and finally one that's like not gross um, honey itself was used as a antibacterial and you can use that now it's a, it's an incredibly good antibacterial and it's it's such a good antibacterial that honey is usually like completely clean and sterile already it in fact doesn't go bad honey is a food that we've found thousands and thousands of years old stored crystallized honey that is still viably edible hmm. 
Nice. So you can use it as a disinfectant because it's so full of various chemicals and sugars and things. If you just smear honey on a wound, it disinfects it. I'll have to make use of that sometime in the future, I think. So overall, they're all like, yeah. we, we have this idea that we're just in this inevitable march of progress and everything now is better than everything we used to use. But the more we look into it, we're finding things that we used to do that we discounted as, you know, dumb, out of date ideas that are actually incredibly useful and in fact, better than some of the stuff we're using now. We shouldn't discard the past. We should learn from it. Which is kind of the basis of this episode. Also, they have a really interesting... It, they don't do anything with it. But it's a somewhat interesting message of, like, even in these people who are, like, you have, like, an underwater civilization and an air-breathing civilization that were at war. They do this whole, like, but they were the same species, so it was dumb for them to fight each other. Yeah. Uh, another case of people with terrible reasons for trying to kill each other. Come on, folks. Maybe maybe there was like something where the ones on the surface liked Digimon and those of the, uh, the Aquids liked Pokemon instead. Well, now we have to hate the ones on the surface. <laughs> As someone who doesn't really have uh, you know a horse in this game at all, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be curious now. <laughs> Anyway, that's all I had as far as uh, you know, Amigris or Amigri or whoever you want to pronounce it. Uh, it's, it's, it basically literally means gray amber, by the way. Yeah, gray amber, which smells awful, was apparently thought to be a cure for the plague during the Middle Ages because the smell would keep the bad plague smells away. Yes. Happens. So, uh, because, you know, it's, it's all about the fumes and the vapors, not the tiny bacteria that's your, and, uh, and viruses and things like that. It's... It's all about the, the bad smells, and obviously, yeah. that's all you have to fix. You know, miasma. Oh, and uh, here's a little a random bit of information uh, I've run in, across. Apparently, uh, Charles II of England uh, apparently liked to eat it. Ew. Yeah. Ew. I'm not sure if the, how, how accurate this is, but this is, uh, you know, cited in a couple of places here. So. E. On that note. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we've already gotten more than... We possibly expected out of this episode, so I think maybe it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show! Hey everybody, welcome back to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. How are you doing tonight? I hope you're doing fantastic. Gepwin's once again here, as well as our various contestants, as well as our guest uh, contestants for uh, this, this episode, of course. And they've been racking up various points, and we are about ready to hand out some prizes. So our first one today is the What Prime Directive Prize, which goes to the crew of the Enterprise for very specifically interfering with the development of a pre-warp civilization, clear altering their entire arc development, and for what reason? To get so that Kirk can, you know, go back to commanding from the bridge. What do they win, Gapwin? They win another one of these missions to go out to where ships are mysteriously disappearing. <laughs> I think that, like, every time they break the Prime Directive, they get sent on one of these missions. It's one of these, like, We'll let the universe decide whether they get punished or not things. <laughs> You'd think at some point they would uh, find a more reliable method to, uh, to sort out this uh, prime directive issue. That just It's like, we'll just hope they go and get themselves killed. <laughs> Our second prize is the uh, Pro-Life Hypocrisy Prize, which goes to Domar and the Aquan Tribunes for being all, we, we cherish all life and, you know, we won't kill people. But then they put Kirk and Spock up on the surface to suffocate later. What do they win, Gapwin? They win writing 
their pro-life stuff down as a decree or edict so that they'll actually follow it. Apparently that's what you need to do in this society instead of just saying it. Yeah. <laughs> this is a tradition, but not part of the official doctrine, so we couldn't follow it. Ho ho. Uh, thus you get to die now. Hmm. Well, anyway, our final prize for today is the Sacred Shark Prize, which goes to the Sir Snake for its being forbidden to capture one or hunt one or whatever because of ancient doctrines. Uh, so don't you go do that, guys. What does the, the Sir Snake win, Gavin? Well, given that this one is probably dead, I think they should collect it, put it in a tank with some formaldehyde, display it in the art museum, like, shark in tank. <laughs> it's one of my favorite art pieces because you look at the materials list just as glass formaldehyde shark <laughs> hmm i think uh we're gonna need a bigger tank though it's pretty big anyway take us away Gepwin, because that's all we got for today our, our, our various contestants you've been beautiful uh and a little damp but uh we'll we'll, we'll get the mops later so uh yeah let's let's get out of here just reminds me of going to the room at the uh natural history museum that has the life-size blue whale replica that'd be cool see one of these stupid things <laughs> quite large i'm guessing so thank you to all of our contestants and everyone for joining us here on the galaxy's favorite game show <laughs> Who's a big fluffy kitty? There's a big fluffy kitty. Um, actually, I'm not sure if 100% named after, like canonically there, but definitely inspired by a giant cat civilization from the um, Ringworld novels. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, who who wrote those Ringworld novels? Some dude. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna guess Some Alan do. Dean Foster because he's written right here on the Wikipedia page. Uh, now, th now there is, uh, uh, you know, someone else who was involved in this episode, Larry Niven. Yes. What did you do, Larry? Yeah, uh, he wrote the the Ringworld. Oh, okay, that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> Ringworld. Who's this Alan Dean Foster dude then? It's a good question. I don't know. Bonding Foster, Star Trek Log 10. Oh, he wrote a full-length novel based on this. Expanded to become the first half of a full-length novel by Alan Dean yeah. Foster. Okay. So Larry Niven wrote, wrote this episode, who, of course, did Ring World, as I just said. I've never read these. I just saw a thing about it a while back. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm guessing uh, Dom Noble's uh, video? Yeah. Yes, me too. <laughs> no, I've been uh, vaguely familiar with the uh, Ringworld uh, uh, stuff for ages, uh, and uh, and it's, I, I, I guess partially because of this episode, <laughs> it's like, oh yeah. Uh, also, I know people have, who have read it. So I've been vaguely aware of Ringworld for a while as one of those things that everyone tells you to read because it's like super good sci-fi, and then I never got around to it. Yes. So maybe I will one of these days now that we have to do this, but. Probably not before next week. I'll have to read a synopsis, and y'all should go write. Go, y'all should go watch uh, Dominic Noble's video about it because it's a pretty good synopsis. Yes, uh, though I will say that it has very, very minor connections at all to what's going on here, other than there's this species, a big fluffy kitty. So. Yes, but same author, which is fun. Also, yes. <laughs> so next week episode is called the Slaver Weapon, which I don't like the sound of. Not one bit. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it brings up uh, 
All sorts of horrible associations potentially there. Yeah. But uh, if I mentioned the, the big fluffy kitties are kind of evil. Yeah, evil big fluffy kitties. As <laughs> all big fluffy kitties should be. <laughs> so uh, basically just cats. Yeah. I like cats. I'm a cat, I'm a cat person myself. But I understand they're, they're inherent evil, so that's all good. <laughs> but okay, that's that's next week. So join us next time for Big Evil Cats on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, who's the big evil fluffy kitty? You are... You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>